It is in lenders' interest, after all, to lend to creditworthy borrowers. Ultimately, that's how they earn their profits. And regulators, for their part, need to continue to work with lenders to help them do all that they prudently can to meet the needs of creditworthy small businesses. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Hey, Jacob. Great to see you co-hosting the podcast. You got a day pass from the blog cave today? I did. I did, which allows me to say to you, today is Tuesday, July 13th. That was Ben Bernanke you heard at the top. And today we have Barney Frank back on the podcast. He's talking about the big financial reform bill. He knows a thing or two about the bill. His name is on it. And in a Planet Money first, Adam, he does not yell at you. He yelled at me one time. Right. He came on the podcast once. He yelled at you once. All right. So we were one for one. Fine. But no longer. Okay. Enough. How about you give me today's Planet Money indicator, Adam? All right. It's a lot of indicator. Yeah. It's $42.3 billion. Billion? Billion with a B. I can't wait. What is it? It is the U.S. trade deficit for the month of May. So... U.S. consumers, government, and business spent $42.3 billion more on products and services that we imported than the rest of the world spent on U.S. products and services that we exported. This is an increase over the last several months. Though I will say, I remember years ago when my job was covering global trade for NPR, every month I would report on a $59 billion, $62 billion trade deficit. And all the experts said, oh, boy, we really need it to be lower. We need it to be lower. Yet today, most of those same people are saying, oh, thank goodness, it's higher than the 30, 35 it's been lately. Right. Well, it's going up because as the economy slowly starts to come back, U.S. consumers buy more stuff. Also, exports keep rising, right? U.S. companies sell more stuff overseas. So in a way, this rising gap is a sign that the economy is slowly coming back. Right. I, I often think with all these economic things, we often say, is it good or is it bad? And those are generally crude terms. Here's an area where it's particularly confusing because I think almost any economist would say over the long term, over five years, 10 years, 20 years, it is bad, objectively bad. It is unsustainable. It causes problems globally and in the U.S. for the U.S. trade deficit to be as high as it is. I'm sure you could find some economists who disagree, but largely the consensus would be that's a problem. But in the short term, in the, in the, in the months coming, I think a large number of economists would say it helps the U.S. economy for the trade deficit to grow a little if that means the economy is kicking back into gear if imports are rising, but exports are rising as well. Right. I mean, they might say, you know, ideally, sure, exports could be rising more, but basically it's a good thing that these things are rising. Okay. Enough about the indicator. Back to finance reform. Sometime soon, we don't know exactly when, the Senate is all but certainly going to pass the big bill, right? We've been talking about it for a long time, and they would have passed it already, but for the fact that Senator Robert Byrd died a few weeks ago. He was the crucial 60th vote. So right now, Congress is waiting for West Virginia's Democratic governor to appoint a Democratic replacement to Byrd or for something else to happen so that they can get the crucial 60 votes they need. And all of this was driving Barney Frank crazy when I interviewed him on Friday. It's really odd that a death uh, of a 92-year-old should have such an impact. 
It just shows how dysfunctional these rules are in the Senate where you need 60. I have this fear that one day there's going to be a, uh, a fire in the Senate and there are only going to be 57 senators there and they'll all die because they won't have 60 votes to allow themselves to leave the building. Okay, right. So we have all this process stuff to deal with in the Senate, but we know the bill is going to pass. So to learn how this bill is going to change our financial system, I talked to Lawrence Kaplan. He's a bank regulatory attorney with Paul Hastings in Washington. So this stuff, you know, it's his bread and butter. He says you can read the 2300 and whatever pages of this bill, but you still won't know the answers to a lot of super important questions. In reality, the, the, the statute and the enactment of the statute is really Act One, uh, whereas basically Congress beat up on the banks. What we have now coming up, and it's probably the more, in some ways, the more crucial point is Act Two of the play, where the details are going to be flushed out. Now, to, to some degree, this is pretty normal stuff. Whenever Congress creates some new law that has to do with regulation, it leaves a fair number of details up to the regulators to figure out. There's no way Congress can predict everything that's going to happen and every single nuance. But this bill leaves so much uncertain. Some of the most basic questions that we would have are not settled in the bill. They're left up to regulators. So, okay, we know the bill covers big banks, sure, right? It covers J.P. Morgan Chase. It covers Bank of America. But the bill also gives regulators the power to decide that big companies that are not banks, but that are really important to the economy, should also be subject to some of these regulations. Here's Larry Kaplan again. What this legislation authorizes is this oversight council, which is made up of various regulators, to deem certain entities uh, non-bank financial companies. And as a result, they then have to register and report to the Fed, and then they're subject to regulation. So, so, so it's fair to say we don't even know what companies this bill is going to apply to. Yeah, correct. We can guess who they are, but we can't really, we don't know who they are. So crucial question number one, we don't know who is covered by this bill. And that is a really big deal. You know, Companies, especially big multinational companies, which is what we're talking about, build their businesses around which regulations they have to follow. So not knowing if the Fed is going to regulate you or if there's a whole host of new rules you have to follow, that that is tough for a business to, to work around. All right. So, so uncertainty number two, let's say you do find out you fall under these rules. We don't yet know exactly what the rules are. Like we were tossing around this very basic question. Let's say you run a very major multinational, super important company, Goldstein Incorporated. We're huge. Huge, huge, huge. And you get a phone call one day, hey, it's Ben Bernanke, we're the Fed. We now regulate you. You didn't think we regulated you, but we determined you're systemically important. We now regulate you. Should you be happy to get that phone call or should you be furious to get that phone call? And one key unanswered question that determines whether I'm happy or furious what happens if I get into real trouble and can't pay my debts, right? A highly likely outcome. Yeah, we, can, we can debate that later. But this is a core issue, right? A big systemically important company can't pay its debts. What are regulators going to do? This was the big issue with Lehman Brothers in the financial crisis. And, you know, Henry Paulson said, well, Treasury didn't have the authority to deal with it. So the bill creates this new provision. It says, hey, we've solved this problem. If you're a big, giant company and you get in a lot of trouble... The FDIC, which historically took over banks when banks got in trouble, but now this bill says, hey, the FDIC can take over 
any company that is deemed systemically important, that is deemed so big that if it failed, it would damage the whole economy. Now, we asked Charles Calamiris of Columbia University about this, and he said, yes, we know that the FDIC will step in, but there's a whole lot of stuff we don't know. Key thing that worries me is we don't know how the FDIC is going to use its new authority for bailing out non-financial institutions. I think that's our biggest concern coming out of this bill about what we don't know. And what we do know is that Congress didn't limit that bailout authority. It's unlimited effectively. The FDIC, according to this bill, can bail out every debt on planet Earth anytime it wants to. Now, I think that's a little dangerous. And I don't think and I think that's what we call institutionalizing too big to fail. So this is a really crucial issue. If a large company, a systemically important company, goes under, it goes, it basically goes bankrupt, and the FDIC takes over. Now, what does seem almost certain to happen is the owners of that company, basically the stockholders, the shareholders, will lose all or most of their money. Most likely, the management of the company will be fired. They'll be kicked out. But there's this other group, the bondholders. Bondholders are basically people who have lent money to that company who the FDIC could bail out, could could give them their full money back. Now, this is the kind of thing that drives economists crazy because bondholders are a very important part of our economy. They're the people who lend money to large institutions. And if the government is saying you can lend money to large, badly run companies and still get your money back – those bondholders are not going to worry. They're not going to pay a lot of attention to how that company is run. They're going to end up being more likely. There's a direct incentive to lend money to large, badly run companies rather than to smaller or medium-sized, well-run companies because the government's not going to step in for those small and medium-sized ones. And so it makes our whole economic system less safe. Capitalism cannot function if people don't have to pay for their bad investment decisions. So, yes, you know, we want bondholders to be nervous. It's a good thing if bondholders are nervous. Now, to be clear, we don't know exactly what the FDIC would do in, in this kind of case. Calamiris isn't saying the bill makes the FDIC bail out the bondholders. He's just saying it leaves it up to the FDIC to do basically whatever they want. All right. So moving on from nervous bondholders, there's this whole other area that is really important, which is all the things this bill does to make it less likely that we'll ever have to deal with this problem. The bill's authors said, hey, this bill makes the system fundamentally safer. It reduces the likelihood of any big companies going bankrupt or having to be bailed out or anything like that. This has to do with liquidity and capital. The way I think about this is capital is how much money you have, but it could be in very unavailable form. So you might have a million dollar house, but the pizza delivery guy comes to your door and you don't have any liquid capital and he doesn't care that you have a million dollar house. He wants 30 bucks for the pizza. Liquidity is having ready cash. So what this bill says is you need both liquidity, meaning ready cash, and you need capital, meaning a lot of money stored away somewhere, both of which are crucial for buffering sudden shocks. But again, the bill leaves the details of capital and liquidity up to regulators. What should liquidity requirements be? The bill doesn't really say. How should capital requirements exactly be uh, structured? 
It doesn't say. How exactly do we establish capital requirements that vary with the size and complexity of institutions? It doesn't really say. Um, I would say 80 to 90 percent of what we think of as the financial system is subject to huge uncertainty as a result of the bill. Now, when I talked to Congressman Barney Frank, he told me, yeah, the bill does leave a lot for regulators to figure out. But he said, what else are we supposed to do? Inevitably, you have to give some discretion to people. You can't, if you do it too inflexibly, you're inviting the businesses to get around you. You need to give the regulators discretion. And people said, what's the guarantee that this discretion will be used? Well, and the answer is, in democracies, there are no guarantees. Elect good people. Look, one of the great periods of reform in American economic history was Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson doing antitrust. And they were very tough, and they put in good rules. But by the 20s, when the American people decided to elect uh, Harding and Coolidge and Hoover, they weren't used well. So we can give the regulators the tools, but we are then going to need there to be follow-up. The only other thing I'd say is this. If the first set of regulators do it right, it will be much harder for a subsequent very conservative deregulator to undo it. It's easier for people to not do something right in the first place than to undo something that's been put in place. Now, I do want to say I think that was a beautifully put defense of regulatory discretion. But there are many folks we've talked to who said, yeah, but this still gives too much discretion. Yes, you need some discretion. This bill leaves too much discretion. I mean, it leaves us in this place where everybody is talking about this as this like climactic moment, you know, signing this big bill into law. But ultimately, it's going to take literally years before we really figure out what it means as regulators slowly fill in all these blanks. Now, when regulations are written and then rewritten and worked on, it all happens very much in public. There are public hearings and websites and documents that you can read. They're unbelievably boring. They're unbelievably hard to make your way through. Right. And the people with the most interest in, you know, really following them closely and influencing the process are inevitably the banks and the other companies that are subject to the new rules. Them and Planet Money. We're going to be reading all those boring documents so you don't have to and studying them and telling you what they mean. So we're going to rename this the Dodd-Frank Planet Money Job Security Bill of 2010. And 2011 and 2012. Maybe 13. Right. Exactly. I think that does it for us today. Jacob, you have some great stuff on the blog today. I know you have some other quotes from Barney Frank that he gave us. You have some stuff on the trade deficit. You can find all that on the blog, npr.org slash money. Also, you can email us. We always want to hear from you. We're at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening.